global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by Eisner Amper. Does your accountant do more than crunch numbers? Eisner Amper understands the more their clients know, the better the outcome. That's why they've created a 2016 personal tax guide. Free download at EisnerAmper.com slash strategies. U.S. stocks, they're a little changed while the dollar heads for the longest rally since October against the yen. As speculation grows that the world's largest economy is strong enough to withstand higher interest rates. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P 500 little change at 2036. Dow Jones Industrial Average little changed up six points to 17,522. And the Nasdaq's down two tenths per cent or nine points to 47.63. Ten-year Treasury up three thirty seconds. The yield 1.88 percent. The yield on the two-year 0.86 percent. Nymex crude oil down half percent or 19 cents to 39.27 a barrel. Comex gold is down less than a tenth of a percent on a dollar ten to 12.22.40 an ounce. The euro a dollar 12.04. The yen 113.21. Starwood Hotels and Resorts Worldwide said it received a higher takeover offer from a group led by Ambang Insurance Group, putting the Chinese company back into battle with Marriott International for control of the hotel operator. And Starwood Hotels is up 2.5% this morning. Revlon naming Fabian Garcia as its next chief executive, turning to a Colgate Palmolive veteran to revamp the cosmetics company. It's down almost 12% today. And Bob Jane, the global head of Credit Suisse Asset Management, is leaving the Swiss Bank to be co-chief investment officer at Millennium Management, according to people familiar with the matter. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Barry. Uh, Karen, uh, thank you uh, so much. I want to note quickly here, I think it's so important that Friday, thanks to Mark Grant for pointing this out, out in the Twitter space, Atlanta GDP now angled down to a 1.4%. Barry, that's a a low number for Q1-16. You got to believe it's going to go lower after today's economic data. Um, yes That's and no. I mean, it, it, they always work within a fairly broad range when yes. they look at the top and bottom of the top 10 forecasts. But that's really right at the bottom of the range, yeah. and that's back where it was in the in the uh, early January. I, I'm sorry I missed it. I should have had that out at, at, at early morning hours, 5 a.m. Um, we have been waiting days to speak with Carla Ann Robbins, who with Julius Weig owns the high ground in Cuba. She is at the Council on Foreign Relations out of Wellesley. In Berkeley, uh, in Latin American studies and the future of Cuba. Um, Carla, good morning. Um, Dr. Robbins, how the, I, oh, I, I said, I, I said, let's wait on this until the president leaves. How'd he do? Um, I think he did, um, he, he did really well. Uh, I mean, just the contrast in that press conference of looking at sort of the old grumpy Raul Castro, um, and the young dynamic, uh, Obama and forcing Raul in many ways or enticing him into a joint press conference, something that Raul doesn't do and getting him to answer questions or at least get reporters to ask him questions about human rights was yeah. a pretty persuasive contrast. Barry, it's extraordinary to me. Folks, I want to say that the one volume definitive is Julius Weig on Cuba. I mean, I mean, what, when you, when you read about Cuba, Dr. Robbins, if you were, if you were to look at Julius Weig's classic one volume on Cuba, how would you reroute, rewrite it right now? So the key question, the key issue here is who is the businesses in the U.S. that are going to benefit from the opening? Is this a tourist? Uh, sector or is this agriculture and telecom technology and manufacturing? How do you see Cuba 
Carla, interacting with American business? Well, the thing about the Cuban economy is it's it's small and it's poor. Um, it needs a lot of stuff. And mm-hmm. with the loosening of the embargo, there are things that American companies can sell. But the level of excitement about Cuba has less to do with the power of the economy than it is the fact that nobody's been able, no American's been able to get in there for 50 plus years. So, you know, I wouldn't get too excited about it. Now, which sectors would benefit? Part of that depends on what the Cuban government's willing to do. I mean, the thing that Obama wanted more than anything else was to get Internet companies in there so that they could, you know, open it on, up beyond the 5 to 10 percent penetration that people believe, because the whole point of it is to have the breath of fresh air in there. Will the Cuban right. government really let Internet companies come in? Will they really allow the Cuban people to have connectivity? You know, I probably not. Their goal for this is to just get enough cash so they can stay in power. I don't think they want the same right. thing Obama, want, Obama wants. Now, what does Cuba need? Under the loosening of the embargo, keep in mind that only Congress can can lift the embargo. I mean, basically anything that you know for home repair and for farmers and pretty much everything that, right. that they could possibly get that mm-hmm. they could afford, but they can't afford much. Brief me on the Havana-centric analysis. Cuba's got a whole other Cuba besides. 17 square blocks of beaten up Havana. Is is there more there or will it just be a Havana relationship? Well, um, in theory, the loosening of the embargo is supposed to reach out to small entrepreneurs, farmers, that could go beyond Havana, but all of that is in the hands of the Castro government. The Castro government will d- decide how much they're they're willing to mete out their limited amount of, of hard currency and how much the interaction they want their people to have with the world. You know, there's another way of looking at it, which is, you know, I don't know if you saw this, but this Fidel Castro, who Obama with whom Obama did not meet, who's very old and quite ill, has a letter in Grandma, the you know the Communist Party newspaper today, ripping the visit. Uh, what we don't really know is. You know, are there two Cubas politically as well? Or it seems to me that everyone who we saw being interviewed, and and you know, even when when they were letting me into Cuba decades ago, um, everybody thought that you know the revolution had just gone on too long. But there are a lot of true believers still out there, and certainly Fidel is the leader of that faction, not going to be around all that much longer. But what we don't know yeah. is what is sort of the will of the Cuban people and what the will yeah. of the Cuban bureaucracy. I'd point out, Mr. Ritholtz, that uh, Mr. Castro the Younger is 84. Yeah, he's he's the young of the two. You know, when we talk about this breath of fresh air, I I heard similar stuff when we were opening up China, and yet China runs the Internet with a a fairly iron grip. Some stuff leaks through, but it hasn't been that, hey, here's what freedom uh, offers you. Come to a different uh, political or philosophical perspective. I have to imagine tiny little Cuba is going to be much even stronger in terms of, of maintaining that information blockade against sites that they're not interested in. Well, tiny little Cuba doesn't have the resources that China does, tech, you know, economically, technologically, and it's also not, you know, fewer than 100 miles from American True. shores. I mean, in, in Havana, you can list your drive-time radio from Miami. It's, it's never been completely blocked off. You know, the real question is, what happens when Raul dies? Now, I used to say the real question yes. is, what happens when Fidel leaves? Um, he left, and, and the regime is still there. But, you know, what motivated the Cubans to do this? Because they got they got rid of their biggest excuse for their own incompetence mm-hmm. economically. And I think it's because Venezuela doesn't have the resources to keep them to prop yeah. them up the way Russia used to prop them up. So we don't know how desperate they are either. 
If you're just joining us, Carla and Robbins with us with the Council on Foreign Relations on Cuba. Is there a Republican strategy? I mean, I understand it's in disarray with the Cuban vote in Florida, and there's a few other distractions for the Republican Party right now. But for the next president, whether it's, let's presume, Secretary Clinton or Mr. Trump or whomever with the Republicans, is there a Republican strategy beyond the stereotypes of the early 1960s? Um, I I don't think there's much of a Republican strategy at this point in any foreign policy issue other than we're really going to be great and we're going to beat the you-know-what out of everybody out there. Yeah, but <laughs> and the you... really interesting thing, thing is the Republicans <clears throat> swore when Obama did this that they weren't going to allow the money for opening the embassy. They weren't going to they weren't going to, yeah. they were going to try to block this thing the same way they were going to block the Iran deal. I you know I think there's a certain thing in foreign policy in which this is pretty much a fait accompli. Now, can they screw back the openings that have taken place under every president has a prerogative to loosen or tighten the embargo, but only Congress can lift the embargo. And we've seen it swing back and forth to mix my metaphors between Republican and Democratic presidents over the years, remittances and all. I think one of the biggest differences now, though, is that the Cuban population, the people in the United States who were the number one opponents to this opening have shifted demographically. People want to go there. They want to visit their family. They want to send money over there. So I think there's going to, as much as people will say in the campaign trail that this is all going to get rolled back, if the Republicans were to win, it will not right. get rolled back. That, that was a question I, I was going to ask next, which is we've essentially had uh, foreign policy dictated by a small community of Cuban expats in South Florida. In the last minute we have, how much authority does that group have? How much has it waned over the past decade? It's not just that the group has waned. It's, cha- it's changed itself. It's a younger, it's a new generation. It's just their number one issue is no mm. longer, you know, let's overthrow Fidel Castro. And the American public doesn't really care about Cuba. Uh, it, this has always been one of these things that the most vocal exile group, the most vocal group of, of people who come in can rule policy. Right now, if you look at the public data, people would much rather go visit right. their relatives or they'd much rather vote on issues like, you know, the economy or Terrorism or the things that everybody else in the U.S. votes on. Carla, thank you so much. Carla Robbins at the Council on Foreign Relations, a number of other schools as well. I might point out she's been on two Pulitzer-prizing teams at the Wall Street Journal in her reporting days. So thrilled to have her on um, after what we saw from uh, the festivities of the last a week. Are, are, was this painful, Barry? You're going to come. Back I don't know where the three hours, uh, three hours went. It's, it's just, astonishing. It's, it's it blows by. Michael, who? No. Uh, <laughs> good morning, Michael McKee. If you're listening, we hope you are uh, as well. Barry Ritholtz in for Michael McKee this week. I'm Tom Keen. Um, we'll do this tomorrow. Don't forget, Jobs Day on Friday. It's Bloomberg surveillance.